And there it is, episode 165, the last episode in 2023. So... Instead of the usual topics that are might be you know, slightly heavy at times, or nuanced, or controversial, or intellectual, today I'm bringing you something lighter. I'm bringing you an episode that will hopefully take you virtually fishing, and will take you fishing for a big fish in the warm waters of Gulf of Mexico. Our guest today is Bob Gonzalez. Bob is a very experienced big game angler. He's an angler in general, uh, but majority of what we're going to focus today is angling for big game fish, marlin, tuna, grouper, snapper, this sort of thing. And Bob also wrote a book. The book is titled A Flicker in the Water. There it is. And let me tell you, this is a great book. I initially took it like, you know, it's not a, it's not a very thick book. Uh, it has a lot of beautiful photos, uh, illustrations of a big fish. And, you know, I started reading that book like you read review books. You try to get quickly through the book and schedule the interview. And about a halfway through, I go like, man, this is very enjoyable book to read. So I ended up reading that book twice over. I'm not kidding you. I read the book, I scheduled an interview, and then I just sat down and I was just reading that book again, being delighted at what I'm reading and, and soaking it all in and, and just enjoying it. So um, you can obviously buy that book as usual. The link is in the description of the show and in my newsletter and everywhere. Um, so if you're looking for a Christmas present for your um, anglers in your family or maybe just not in your family, but for your anglers, or maybe for just for your own pleasure. Just go ahead and buy that book, A Flicker in the Water. And as if my recommendation is not enough, I can tell you that the book has a foreword by Marielle Hemingway. Uh, she's a granddaughter of Ernest Hemingway. And, you know, that is when it comes to the angling and fishing book i guess this is as good of the credentials as it gets so excellent book and listening to our conversation you will learn not only about marlin tournaments and you know certain techniques for fishing for those big fish uh but you will also learn about the weather and weather patterns how it is in the gulf of mexico and in florida and for those of you who would like to go for their bucket list fishing holidays in florida I ask Bob about all the details, you know, what are the best months to go there, how to book a charter boat, and what type of boats you get to book, and uh, how much does it cost, and all the details. So uh, you can also get some useful information uh, for your next uh, fishing holidays. And so I'm pretty sure you will enjoy this conversation as much as I did having it with Bob. And uh, yeah, enjoy. Bob, welcome to the show. I'm glad to have you here. Hello, Tommy. It's great to be here. I haven't had that much fun reading a book for a while. <laughs> I read a lot of books. Um, it's it's It was really nice. Book about fishing with a lot of photos. 
very enjoyable read. Tell me and tell us, what was your motivation to write that book? And I presume that while you're going to be talking about your motivation to write that book, you can also take, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, the motivation was that um, I had stopped fishing for a while and I had a lot of stories accumulated I thought people would enjoy and, um, and maybe learn a few things from like I did while I was writing the book. And um, the writing the book was my way of still continuing to fish and be out there. And uh, it put me out there as well as every all the readers. <laughs> so I'm right there with you. Um, I grew up in Pennsylvania, uh, which is the north in the northeast northeastern part of the U.S. Um, I used to play college baseball. Uh, we used to come down to Florida during the spring, and um, one year I decided, you know, in it's 70 degrees down here, it's 40 up in Pennsylvania, so <laughs> I want to come down here full time. So one year when uh, baseball season was over, I moved to Florida and. Um, I, I came here and I made a living down here in Florida where I live now. I've been here 30 years. And fishing is, is what you do for how you spend your free time. Well, um, the place that I moved to called Destin is uh, known as the world's luckiest fishing village. And when I first came here, I still remember I drove over what's called the Destin Bridge where there's a big sign, world's luckiest fishing village. And I looked out on the Gulf of Mexico and I thought, wow, this is what Christopher Columbus must have felt like on his first voyage, <laughs> discovering the new world. You know, that's exactly what it felt like, because um, it was such a different thing than Pennsylvania, where I had grown up. Um, I used to fish in Pennsylvania every once in a while. We would go to the coast of New Jersey and fish for bluefish and um, in the summer and cod in the winter. And you'd catch an occasional albacore or sea bass or something like that. But the... Um, the variety of, a variety of fish that's down here is just unbelievable. You know, you've got wahoos and marlin and sailfish and grouper and snappers. I mean, it's just incredible. So um, I came here. I opened up a small business, actually. It's a, a soft rolled pret soft pretzel business, and I called it the Pretzel Twister. And uh, then I named the boat the Twister after the business. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I began to fish. Smart move. Yeah. I started fishing all the time, and I fished for about 15 years, and then um, I didn't fish for a while. I sold the boat. Uh, now I go out with friends mostly, um, but I still go. I just went last week, and I it was really rough that day, though. I, I like to go out on the nice days. <laughs> it, there you uh, go. it makes all the difference in the world. Although sometimes on those rough days, the fish bite, you know. So you just never know. I think I think this is like when you're when you're like initial like in this initial phase where you're just like when it's just so hot and fishing, you want to go fishing. You go every day, and then once you're done a little bit, you're just like ah no, I'm just gonna pick a nicer day. Yeah, yeah. I mean those nice days make all the difference in the world. But not to the fish, though. The fish bite nice or calm or rough or not rough. <laughs> it yeah. has more effect on the fisherman than it does the fish. Uh, Bob, tell us uh, the stories described in the, in the book. When are they happening? So is it, are they spread across like multiple years or that it, or where they're all happening in the, in the, in the single years? Like what's the time frame I'm trying to... Oh, yeah, multiple years. Um, there's stories there... Um, that go back 20 years, even 30 years. So I talk about some of the experiences my dad had in Cuba because he was raised in Cuba. And I talk about how he used to fish as a 10, 11-year-old with a hand line and not a reel. Um, and I talk about some of the experiences he had in New Jersey when he first came to the U.S. And um, 
then I start talking about some of my experiences here in the Gulf um, and in the Atlantic. We had a few in the Atlantic. I talk about the Bahamas and the Keys. I love Isla Morada in the Keys is fantastic for fishing, as is Key West and um, the Bahamas, too. Uh, and if you ever want to see the most clear water in your life is go to the Bahamas, man. That's just unbelievable how clear that water is. Yeah, I can I can only imagine. I maybe one day that's a bucket list fishing destination, I guess, for me. Yeah. Bob, you're an angler for for many, many years, obviously. Tell me, like, did you did you see like differences in the catches? So you know, there's this concept of shifting baseline that people um think that something is normal, what their father would say it's just it's a poor fishing. So we going like a decline is worse and worse and worse. Is there anything of that that you're observed over the years in terms of catches, either the number of fish or the size of fish that you or, or your, your people were catching, you know, like 20 years ago and now? Well, um, there have been so many changes. Uh, when I was fishing, you know, 20 years ago, you could fish for any species any day of the year and catch as many as you wanted. Uh, now they only open up for a few weeks a year in some cases. And you're only allowed like one or two well, of certain species, not even all of them. You have to throw back, uh, so like uh, snapper might be open and you might be able to catch two, but grouper will be closed. And then the opposite, grouper might be open and then snapper might be closed before they all used to be open at the same time. So what I'm seeing is, though, that that's really helping the, the fish population. There's a plenty of fish out there and they're growing. It gives them a chance to get big. So in that window that you do get to catch them, uh, you're going to get some nice fish. And that's a very, very uh, uh, positive uh, thing, I guess, because, you know, like I'm recording this podcast and, and there's often anglers talking and, you know, the, the story is the same, that there's a less and less fish and they're smaller and smaller. But then, you know, I guess where you're fishing, the, the, the regulations are quite strict. Can you tell us a little bit more about those regulations in terms like, who is deciding uh, about the regulations and then who is enforcing and how does it look like and then how recreational anglers need to adjust to, to you know, be in compliance with those? Well, here we have uh, in Florida, um, the state waters go out for nine miles and then after that it becomes federal waters. So for up to nine miles, the uh, state of Florida is the one who uh, makes the, the the rules for the fisheries, uh, what you can catch, what time of year you can catch them, and how many. Um, and <laughs> and they've gotten strict. Uh, I see them down at the docks all the time. They're always checking. Anytime a boat comes in, they'll ask you to open your cooler, to, and they'll even go in the cooler and inspect the cooler. And um, just to see, you know, they want to keep make sure everybody's following the regulations. Um it didn't used to be like that. Um, not as bad anyway. I mean, you would see them once in a while, but not like it is today. So anybody who's out there fishing, make sure you always have a fishing license and you always follow the regulations because they will check. Um, after nine miles, it becomes federal water. But the thing is, though, you have to pass the state waters on your way back in. So <laughs> so uh, you always be careful out there, too. Always, uh, anytime you're fishing anywhere locally, know what the rules are. And um, make sure you follow them. Now, on a charter boat, they'll usually take care of that stuff for you. They have the licenses and everything, and they know what the regulations are. So you don't have to worry about that if you're going to charter a boat. But if you're on your own on a private boat, then definitely, you know, know the rules and have the, the license you need. Mm. Is, it li is license expensive? No, I think it's only like 20 or $30 for a full year. And they even have like, 
if you're a senior citizen, like I'm getting close to being, <laughs> you, uh, they uh, give you a discount and in free in some cases. Okay, okay, so it's not that bad. But overall, do you think this this is good that they're that they're regulating this um, so much, or do you think their their regulations are a little bit overboard? Like, what's your, you know, like an overall feeling? Because obviously, you're you're you aware that the state of the environment in many places is not that great, and we no, don't have that many catches as we used to in many parts of the world. I I don't know how about yeah where you are um, as a fisherman. I, it is a little restricting and imposing sometimes because it's hard to catch a really nice fish and have to throw it back, um, which happens. Um, you know, uh, but as a conservationist and as you wanting to see the resource and a, a lover of fish and nature, then I like uh, the catch and release, which I do plenty of anyway, even without the restrictions. Um, I like seeing the, you know, renewing the resource and having the fish multiply and be there for future generations. Um, I like all that. And I definitely like, if I'm going to catch a fish, I want to be able to eat them. I don't want to just catch them just to catch them, you know. So all those things to keep in mind. Yeah, this is always this this balance, right? Where you like, you, you, you get a feed. And nowadays, I like it where if you catch like a big game fish, like a marlin or a sailfish or something, you don't need to uh, to bring him back to the dock. You can just uh, kind of measure him, measure the neck and the width, and they can make a, a mold for you and hang it up. You see... Uh, I don't know if you could see, but see right there in the yeah, uh, yeah, I, the I, can, see, I can see the yeah. the, the fish on the on your yeah. wall. Yeah, that's a, a forty-two pound red snapper that we caught. That was only uh, th- three pounds shy of the state record. Wow, wow, yeah. and that's a replica of that. It's not taxidermy. It's a replica. Although that fish, you know, we did bring in and uh, we took it to the fish market, but it is a replica of it. Okay, okay, excellent, excellent. Yeah, and so is are the regulations for mar? So let's let's talk about now the the bellfish, the marlin, the sailfish. The, the the big fish, big game fishing. Um, how does the regulation of that look like? And are there any regulations of on tackle that you need to use? Like, how does that look like? Well, usually for the big game fish, you're going to need bigger tackle. Um, you can use what they call an 80 wide or 130 wide. 130 is the biggest. And if you're going to use that, you're going after just strictly a big blue marlin or a big swordfish, and that's it. <laughs> you don't need something that big pretty much for anything else, unless you hook a big shark or something. Um, actually, I'll tell you something interesting here in the Gulf of Mexico, just a couple of weeks ago, they broke the ex- existing, uh, blue Marlin record Wow! for a blue. Yeah. How big was for, it for a blue? Yeah. For a blue Marlin caught in the Gulf, it was 1,145 pounds. Wow. Yeah. The Florida had had the previous record, which was 1,045 pounds. So it beat the, uh, by a hundred pounds. That one was caught out of Alabama which is, uh, you know, a little bit past uh, the panhandle of Florida there. Uh, they fished out of a, a place called Orange Beach. And um, it shattered the Alabama record, which had been like 800 pounds. But, uh, yeah, that was only a couple weeks ago. Did they brought it to the so they, to the dock or did they release it? They brought it to the dock, yeah. Uh, they waited and everything, yeah. They brought it to the dock because I, the fish died during the fight. Okay. Yeah, so th- they brought it to the dock and um, they waited and everything, yeah. But I mean, it does. It's a sign that the the fishery is healthy, you know. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And and you're you're describing in your book a few of those epic fights with with massive fish, and and we get to that in a second because I have a few questions about it. But just on a on a theme of uh, billfish uh, being marlin or swordfish, 
are there any regulations that are telling you whether when can you release the fish and where can you have to release the fish and when can you bring it back? Is this like how does is that regulated? Well, um, for the marlin, they it depends on the tournament. Actually, tournaments also set their own rules, and if usually when you're fishing in a marlin tournament, some of them you don't have to bring them back. You measure them, take a picture of them, and uh, they're satisfied with that. Other ones. Um, they have to be of a certain size or length to bring back. Uh, and everyone is different. So um, th there's conservation is definitely a priority for most tournaments and most uh, fishing associations. Now, I will say this, though. If you're ever out there <laughs> and you happen to catch what you know is a big fish, don't let anybody else touch your line because it will disqualify the fish. Yes, I heard I heard that that only the only leader can be touched by the deckhand. Right. That's right. Right. Right, yeah. yeah, the 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 rod and reel cannot be touched by anyone else other than the angler. These are IGFA rules, I think. That's what I heard. Right, uh, that's right. what I read. Yeah, yeah. And so, listen, but anyway, if you're just taking boat out, right, and you're after a big fish and you hook up to the marlin, why, let's say, I don't know, six hundred pounds or something, how do you know? If you're if you can bring it back or you have to release it, like what is the rule then? If you're just fishing outside a tournament, well, you'll know. I mean, every state is different, um, but you know, uh, here in Florida, they they change the rules all the time. Um, I think the fish has to be I I don't know if it's sixty or forty eight feet in length to uh, be able to keep them for the marlin, and they're definitely not sellable. So you can't. Uh, bring it back thinking you're going to take it to the market because you can't do that here. So it's regulated by size. Essentially, like, like under certain size, they need to be released. Yeah. And you can bring them yeah, for sure. over Definitely, a certain yeah. size. Okay, yeah. okay. Yeah, that's what, that was, that was what, what I was uh, curious about. And then surely yeah. you, you have the way to estimate like on the side of the boat how big is a fish. And, uh, and Yeah. Listen, Bob, I have, a, I have a question that is something that I heard about before I read your book and it was always I was always wondering like how that works and then you describing in your book an epic fight with a bluefin not bluefin uh, yellowfin tuna and you're talking about the situation where an angler is about to get spooled uh, you know that ran out of a line on his reel and then you're tying another line to this line and you're unclipping the reel on you know unscrewing or whatever the reel throwing it overboard and then you start fighting the fish on another tackle from another reel and another rod and line tell us and tell me how that how the mechanics of that work like how does it how does it how you do this and how all that works because i never could wrap my head around it <laughs> well uh if you're lucky enough to get a, a bite like that where you're about to get spooled, spooled which happened to us, um, spooled is when you run out of line. And uh, once you run out of line on the reel and there's no more, the fish is gone. You know, it takes all your line with them. So sometimes what you have to do is attach another line to the original line. So you'll take another, the, the tip of the line from another reel, and you'll attach it to the line that's existing in the water, that you know, from the boat, um, out of the tip of the other line. And, uh, then you'll throw that one in the water. And sometimes you can lose the uh, rod and reel, but you have to throw them in the water. And then you'll have the second rod and reel in your hand. And you're fighting the fish uh, through the other line and through the other rod and reel that's in the water. But you're attached to another fish. And actually, this fish actually spooled us on the second one, which was amazing. I've, uh, so we knew it was a big fish. Um, but, you know, like uh, tunas, uh, 
the 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 bite stopped. He just took one. He just stopped. He didn't have a run in him. And then the, that's when we started working him back towards the butt. But he almost fooled us on two reels, which was incredible. Wow. So obviously you the, the, the you you gotta stop the fish for on the first uh, rig to be able to tie the line. So the line cannot be moving because you need to tie like a prism. There's a special knot to as attach the yeah. The second you, there's line. a special knot um, that you tie the the second line to, and you can you can even use rubber bands and and things like that to uh, secure it. And then you can you can use it also you use a, a harness on your around your waist, hold the rod and reel in there too because um, once that you want and you want to do all this stuff and and have preparations ahead of time because if you wait until the fish bites, it's too late. You have to know. What are you gonna do before this happens? Yeah, and and so, but tell me, like, when you're tying the new line to the old line, the old line is still going through all the rings in the rod and and goes to the yeah. to the to the reel. So, are you throwing like the the rod and reel, or you're just uh, like how how does that? Are you tying this and just cutting it it before it and before you throw it? Like, how does that mechanically work? You're throwing the rod and reel in the water. You're taking the line from the second reel and attaching it to the first reel, and you're tying it to, to the reel of the of the first rod with the line. And then, and then once the, it's secure enough, then you throw the reel in the water with the the rod, and you have that second one in your hand. See, wheeze, man. This is this is yeah. Thanks for for explaining that. I was just I was just wondering. And then obviously once you're lucky enough to start retrieving the line then you see like at first like oh i have my old reel so then you get a get the and then you continue playing the fish or fighting a fish on the first reel again right, wow. is, right. It, is it often is it happening often uh well it happens every once in a while yeah <laughs> yeah um this reel in this case that i wrote about in the book happened to be brand new too <laughs> So <laughs> once we threw it in the water, you know, you never know if you're going to get it back or not. But uh, luckily, we were able to get it back. Gee, this is, this is. But is it when it happens? Is it lack of preparation, or is it like you hook up a fish you didn't expect it to hook up, or is it just like sometimes it happens? You know, you, you hook up a fish you didn't expect to hook up, but you always have to be prepared. Always be prepared for everything out there. Uh, Make sure all the knots are fastened the way they should be. Uh, make sure all the drags, which means the give and take on the reel, is set to a good uh, resistance so the fish doesn't snap. If he pulls too hard, the line won't snap. Um, that sort of thing. The ice and the coolers. You have to make sure everything is... is every, as a fisherman, you have to... Everything you can control, knots, reels, everything, you should do that all ahead of time because you're going to lose some anyway that happens to every fisherman but everything that you can control beforehand you have to do to to make your chances better of landing the fish yeah for sure and look like so if you need to do this this maneuver with the attaching second rod then i presume well you need a second person so that's not a fish that you can claim in any tournament or whatever because uh, am, am i right or are there people who are able to do it themselves to tie to to tie that no no you need a second person you, usually a fish like that wouldn't uh, be eligible for a tournament i would imagine so wow that that was that was you know i was only once it happened to me not to me but on a on a boat when i was with we we hook up to a uh, poor beagle shark and we didn't really? expect that yeah and the guy the guy like we we thought he gonna get spooled because there was like no stop to the shark 
and escape or fire the engine and start chasing after the shark. So that, you know, may give us enough time. Not us, like the, the angler was able to kind of like tire the shark. So we stop him and then read him in. And it was like, wow, man, the adrenaline and the whole, you know. Oh, the adrenaline is unreal. I know. It's just nothing like it. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Bob, tell me, what is your most memorable fish or biggest fish or the one that it's like the one you remember the most? We- <laughs> and is it even well, and is it even one in the book because sometimes the most memorable fish is the one that you caught when you were six you know so that counts too for my question yeah. <laughs> i have a few memorable ones that tuna that we talked about was memorable that snapper on the wall is memorable um i remember the one i talk about it in the book a blue marlin um as we were driving by a pallet that was floating out there took off on this bait and came out of the water like a monster. And he, he ran with this bait with, with a force like something I'd never seen before. I mean, it was un, it was incredible. He didn't last long, but the power and the way he attacked this, well, actually, I think we were lose, using a lure that time. The way he attacked that lure was just unbelievable. I just, I've never seen anything like it. And um, I mean, who knows? Maybe that would have been the Gulf of Mexico record. <laughs> you never landed this one. Never boated it. No, he didn't stay on long, but uh, just the force that he hit with was just incredible. I'll never forget that. But yeah, that's that's really one of my most memorable experiences out there. We've caught some nice fish, though. I've caught a few blue marlin, not a big one like that. I've caught a few of them, and we caught a swordfish one time in the middle of the night. Uh, that one put up a good fight, too. I was well, I was once on the on a swordfish trip, but it never happened. Um, yeah, just fish didn't show up, but it's like uh, overnight. Well, the, yeah, they're like that. You're not going to get them. Talking about the glowing. Yeah, the glow stick. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Here they fish them for daytime now. Um, that's only become popular in the last 10 or 12 years or so, uh, daytime sword fishing. Um, they pretty much use the same tactics, but now they do them in the day, whereas before they used to do them only at night. Are there any regulations and the restrictions about doing it at night, or is it like not regulated? You can do whatever. No, you no want. regulations on that. Oh, okay, okay. So, so it's a, yeah. it's 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 always interests me. You know, like how different countries and and like in your case, different states regulate fishing and and so on um, to, like you said, preserve preserve the resources. Staying on the theme of fish. Um, tell me about the cobia fishing because cobia is like <laughs> a fish. You know, it's a it's a fish that I I remember uh, like one of my you know abroad trips fishing trips abroad one of the most memorable fish I caught uh, the, the 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 meat uh, of cobia and the and the size and the look of the fish and the power of the fish and um, you know when I was when I was fishing for cobia obviously I'm a I was like a tourist angler who didn't know any anything about it it's like oh I guess we have a call look at this right. But you, you are, you are in, the, in your book, you're talking very deliberately about spotting cobias and, and cobia fishing. So if you could give us a, a little bit of a description of like, how does it look like? The cobia looks like um, a big catfish. Uh, <laughs> that's the best. They're, they're uh, brownish on the top and white with a white belly on the bottom. Um, the way we fish for them here in Destin is um, they come around up close to the beach when you're in the tower of your boat. And you're always looking for brown spots in the water that look a little different than the yeah than the color surrounding him. When you spot one, it's very important to keep your eye on him. Never take your eye off him because once you take your eye off him, you might not find him again. 
And uh, the way we fish for them is we have um, um, a spinning reel ready with a bait already attached to it. And then we throw it in front of them. And is we, it artificial bait the, or is it natural bait? Well, both. We can use both. You can use eels. You can use little pinfish called chofers. Um, you can use jigs, um, anything like that. A jig is a lure. Um, and then usually with a jig, you'll, you'll, you'll flick your wrist to give it a live look in the water for the fish. And cobias can get really big, you know. Sometimes you can get them 100 pounds, you know, anywhere from 50 to 100 pounds, even more sometimes. Um, and they swim in great big schools. Like, it's not uncommon to see a school of 30 to 50 cobias uh, swimming up towards the beach. What they do is they migrate up around Florida, up through the coast, and to Louisiana where they spawn. Is it popular to fish for cobia? Yeah, and they're really, really tasty. They're really good to eat, cobias are. Yeah, I remember that. That's that's like one of those fish that give you a great sport and also great to eat. <laughs> Usually not good combination for the fish because they get hammered. But then again, if you have it properly regulated. Are there any regulations on cobia fishing? I think there are. Um, I think you used to, there's only allowed two, I think two per person now. Whereas before you could get as many as, you know, <laughs> as you saw you could get them because they were abundant, you know. So now like, you know, they want to preserve them. So I think they're only allowing two per person. Okay, okay. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. But a lot of times with cobia fishing, well, like every fishing, you know, you just don't know. You might get zero some days, you know. You just don't see them some days. Yeah, yeah. As we say, and that's fishing. Yeah. That's fishing. That's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's what it is. Bob, listen, in your book, you are describing uh, on more than one occasion a kind of like a hairy and sketchy situations with the weather. So tell me how, because obviously people who, you know, they're watching YouTube videos of fishing in, in Florida and, you know, the people get hot and there's like, you know, girls in bikinis and nice sun and everything is perfect. But it's not always that perfect. So can you just lay it out to us? Like what are the weather patterns and what are the you know, things to look out for and, you know, just, just to, just to maybe spoil that, um, picture of like a fishing paradise because it can be quite dangerous. It can be, um, you always want to check your marine forecasts. Uh, usually after, if winds get to a certain speed, they'll say a marine forecast is a small craft advisory, a small craft being anything under 60 feet. So you should stay in port that day and not go out. Here we have the fronts that push through. We get a lot of fronts, um, uh, so it's good to you can go in between the fronts, but always be aware of when the fronts might be coming through. Um, some years are very calm. You know, you could go three months, six months with with calm weather all the time, and then the pattern changes, and you might go all month when the wind is blowing every day. So you just have to always be aware of the weather forecasting and uh, always be safe out there because the ocean can. Um, can turn on an instant. So you always want to, even when you're out there, always checking the weather, always checking the radar to see where the thunderstorms might be and and that sort of thing. Um, uh, watching the swells. I, get, I talked about one time where the, the swells started to repeat themselves after we went out on a beautiful day to start the day. And, uh, you know, the swell started to, to, and then on the way back, we ran into a thunderstorm and uh, we felt like the uh, the crew from Gilligan's Island, you know, b- bouncing around out there. But uh, we made it back safely, and uh, and it was fun. 
what are the months that are are, are there those weather patterns like what do you know like you know uh what months are the like the good ones for fishing if someone would like to you know go to florida well, usually for, in florida in the summer you get your thunderstorms um because of the heat you know and a lot of times you might get what they call as a water spout out there the the tornadoes the twister on the ocean is called a water spout we get some of those too usually in the summertime though the wintertime pattern is usually calmer um, the weather settles down. There's no threat of a hurricane in the wintertime. So it's, you know, but fishing is good all year round here. It does certain fish run at certain times, like the, um, the, what they call the pelagic fish, like the marlins and the wahoos and the, the mahi mahis and things like that are usually in the spring through the summer. And then, um, in the winter, so what, so what, month, so what months would that, what, what months would that be spring to summer? Probably for from like April until October Ooh, in Northern oh. Florida. Oh, yeah. okay. Okay. Yeah. And then from like October to to April, you fish usually for amberjack or red snapper or a grouper because or trigger fish. Those kind of fish are here all year round. If anyone who is like in the UK or Ireland or in Europe in general would like to go for, let's say, two, three weeks fishing trip to Florida, what month would you recommend to have like maximum opportunity to have a good fishing but at the same time probably not go into like a you know the peak tourist season like i, I don't know like what would be the what would be the month that you would recommend just to get a taste of fishing in florida i think september is probably the best month all around because school starts and there's not as many tourists and um the weather's still really good and the fish are still out there so i if you're gonna come, come in September or October, but the September is really good. Okay, that's a good that's a good tip. That's a good tip, folks. Uh, mark your calendar: September, September, Florida fishing. And listen, do you do you, should you book the charter um, beforehand before you go, or is it or is it like you can find the good charters once you're already there? How does that work? Well, I think you could do it either way, but it's usually better if you there's a charter boat that you really like or somebody recommends to you. I would book it in advance because. They do get booked up, you know. So if you're gonna do that, I, I could way in advance. Do you know what are the what what costs we're talking about? If you want to book like a you know week, well, it depends on how long you want to go. Um, and that that's yeah, and the, when the you're gonna are... go, right? The, the the trip for a marlin would be way more expensive than the yeah. fish in, in shore. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but like spe like speaking, you know, like a reasonable angler who is like a dedicated to his craft, likes angling, and wants this, you know, like a a bucket list fishing trip to Florida. How much would you would you recommend to have, like you know, for the charter and for the all you know all the things related to fishing for a party for a party boat? If you don't want to spend a lot of money and just enjoy the experiences, uh, you can go out there relatively cheap, anywhere from a hundred to two or three hundred dollars usually per person, and um, they supply out yeah all the rods and reels and the bait and everything, and you can go out there for you know pretty much a full day for that price. Um, now, a charter boat, they get a little more expensive. Um, a charter boat that could take up to six people where you could split the cost six ways for like a um, six or eight hour trip might be, you know, a couple thousand dollars, maybe two or three thousand dollars plus tip. So you want to split that. Make sure you, you know, if you don't want to pay for it all yourself, get other people to go with you and you can split it. Um, they have uh, walk-on charters. Well, they'll, they'll have uh, people who already want to go and you could... It, this you don't have to book in advance. You'll see at the booths where they, they book the trips or if you call the captains, they'll tell you, oh, I have certain people who want to go on a certain day. 
and you want to split the charter with them to help on the costs. But a charter boat um, these days, like you know, and if you want to go for even longer, it's it's more like a a twelve hour day, maybe like four thousand dollars. So you want to make sure that um, you know that if you're going to go out there, you plan away in advance. So that's the moment when you're kind of like a planning and calling people, and you're booking and you're pre-booking the stuff, and then so on. Yeah, and so so here's my another question for for uh, sort of like a people who would like to do it. And you know, after reading your book, and they just got so fired up, which they will, which they will. Um, when you're when you're talking about fighting like a big big game fish, right? Like a marlin or or tuna. Tell me, like, what is the preparation like if physically? Because I presume, like, if you're a total couch potato, you shouldn't even <laughs> try because uh, uh, it's a, it's a hard work. So can you just tell us a little bit of a you know like a physical aspect? of fighting that big fish, you know, how long it takes and, and what it consists of? Well, it's it definitely helps to be in good shape, that's for sure. Uh, but uh, if you do hook a big fish, though, it doesn't matter how good a shape you're in, you still have to have the proper equipment. Otherwise, uh, the fish has the advantage. You're on his territory and he's bigger than you are. <laughs> so you definitely want to be prepared with the right um rods and reels the right baits the right everything uh sometimes if you're going to catch big fish like that it helps to have a harness and a chair uh to put you know if you're going to fight a big fish because it could last several hours you could get a a big tuna or a big marlin and it could go anywhere from two or three hours to i've heard even eight or nine hour uh fights with some of these big fish i've never had one like that myself but yeah yeah that could happen so uh yeah you want to definitely be prepared and it helps to be in good shape that's for sure but i will say when you're out there in the water more regularly, you do develop sea legs, uh, so it it that doesn't quite affect you as bad. It's like uh, like anything else; the more you do it, the better you get at it. So, if someone was just like a fishing in shore, maybe going like a little fish, um, you know, to the sea to catch cod and whatever, you probably wouldn't recommend to go straight after a big marlin, kind of like a tri grouper. <laughs> no, I would probably start out. Yeah. Sometimes uh, fishing from the beach, you can do. You can catch nice fish from the beach sometimes, um, especially in the Caribbean. You know, uh, the water gets deep there real quick, um, and you don't even have to go that far offshore. You to catch wahoos and dolphins and things like that. Uh, sometimes within sight of land, you know, a couple hundred yards off the beach, you know, you can land a nice fish in certain places, and you don't have to worry as much about the weather because you can just scoot back in really quick <laughs> in case. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, that's true. That's very true. Listen, let's go back for a second to the to the uh, weather patterns. By the way, how big is the tide? Is it is the tide in Florida big? Or is it is it? It's kind of like an enclosed no, in the um, Gulf. Yeah, the Florida tides are are not very big. They're a couple feet both ways. They're they're not very big at all. Uh, the Gulf of Mexico, for the most part, is not a rough body of water. Um, it's usually calm most of the time uh, compared to other places like the North Atlantic and Alaska and places like that. I think Ireland too is is really rough. Well, well, man, like tell me about it. Like we we're, we're fishing on the North Atlantic. It's it can be yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. it's actually you know it's hard to find a day. Sometimes it's hard to find a day when you can go out basically because the skipper won't yeah know. I've, yeah yeah wow yeah. But anyway, the uh, the Gulf of Mexico usually for the most part is not a rough body of water, so most days are going to be pretty good out there. What was your most sketchy moment? on the boat like weather wise 
I had two sketchy moments that I can remember. Uh, one of them was um, that one I told you about when we went out on a really nice day and the swells began to develop and, you know, 30 seconds, 20 seconds, 10 second intervals. And I was like, wow, we better get out of here. So, <laughs> so yeah, we came back on that one and we got pounded with a thunderstorm on the way in. And then another time I was coming back from uh, Key West back up to Destin and I got really rough weather, too, through the uh, western side of Florida. And it was really rough that time, too. Uh, we putzed into the to the marina with hardly any fuel. <laughs> we made it back in there. Yeah. Was, was it was it bad? Like, do you, did you have, like, a, uh, you know, wondering whether you're going to make it back? Or was were you, like, reasonably prepared for it? No, we were prepared. We uh, You're always prepared out there, you know. Um, you always have to go out there prepared. Uh, we knew we would make it back. It was rough, but you know we knew we would be back. <laughs> how how likely it is that that you you could be just completely caught off guard, or is it like when you pay attention to the you know advisory and the weather forecast, then you're pretty safe? Or are there cases where you just can be like completely caught off guard? It's like oh my god, I didn't you know you're too far. Every once in a while, you you can hear stories of you know boats that get caught off guard. Um, but uh, for the most part, if you know what you're doing and uh, you take all the precautions and you make sure you do everything right, you're going to be safe most of the time, uh, or not even most of the time, almost all the time. I mean, there are exceptions like to everything, you know, and a lot of times those exceptions are because somebody forgot to do this or this wasn't prepared for, you know, so, you know, if you know what you're doing, just be safe out there, dot all the I's, cross all the T's, and you should be all right. Right. There is there is no goofing around with the ocean, right? Yeah. It's, it's a serious force, and, and you're dealing with the with the elements. Yeah, and you're describing in your book one of the one of the like these these sketchy things when when one of your buddies drawbridge is like with his girlfriend on the on the boat, and it's like, oh man, like this is not good. I was reading this, like, no man, this is not good. <laughs> that was probably the most um, rough weather that any of us had uh, ever experienced. I, I wasn't on the boat that time, but it was just him and his girlfriend, and um, they went through a really rough weather that wasn't predicted between um, Key West and Cuba in that area. It got really rough, and uh, they spent the whole night out there tossing around for like 11 hours until... They, the weather finally broke, and um, they made it to a port in uh, Cancun, <laughs> Mexico, and um, they they lived to tell about it. <laughs> and there was like a funny funny thing as well, which we're not gonna say uh, on the podcast. People need to read the the the, the boat the book, but uh, with the beer that the guy had on board. Like, yeah, this is like crazy. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, anyway, folks, you got you got you got to get the boat book, flick it in the water, and then and, and and read about it because it, it's it's worth and. You know, I, like I was saying on the top of the show, it's just a fun book to read with with all the photos. What's the story with with Goliath groupers? Because you still you cannot even take them out of the water, right? They changed the regulations that you need to keep them in the water at all times. They were, um, yeah, for a long time they were on the endangered list. They were almost uh, depleted, but there's a lot of them now. Um, they've made an unbelievable comeback. You, they, they, you could catch them in Florida, all over the place, and and not in deep water too. They're the biggest grouper in the grouper family. They can get seven, eight hundred, nine hundred pounds, but um, they're in shallow water, usually in a hundred feet or less of water, under bridges, you know, pilings. Uh, even from the beach, sometimes I've heard people catch these Goliath groupers. Um, so, uh, yeah, they're all over the place now. Um, I'm not sure if you can keep them or not, but uh, they all are all over the, so they're plentiful. And you, they're good to eat. Some people say the uh, meat is a little tough, 
Um, you know, the smaller groupers are better. But yeah, uh, there are there are a lot of them out there. It's a good to, it's good to hear that they recovered so quickly. It's it's yeah, one of those things, right? If you it, if, yeah. if you let the fish, if you let the, the the nature and the fish to kind of like leave them alone for a while, they 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 can recover surprisingly quickly. Because they're supposed to be slow growing fish and and like you say they're 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 somewhere in the in the pylons and like a structures in the water. We're jumping a little bit from 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 subject to subject, but it's a, such a you know rare occasion to talk about those things. So um, I'm sure listeners will forgive me to kind of like a switching a little bit chaotically. You were you were fishing a lot around the oil rigs. I'm not now. I'm not sure if it's in in, in the Gulf of Mexico, but I believe that it, it, it is. That some of those oil rigs they're they're not used for a for a long time. They're just basically decommissioned or abandoned, and they're creating this like an artificial reef which is like a, there's an abundance of fish around it so it's a, it's, it's a great place to fish and but then there are some uh i, I don't know if it's like environmental folks or whatever who have a project to remove those to kind of like a clean up and then there's this discussion that like oh th- this is actually doing more harm than good because you're just basically removing habitat for the fish is is, is did i get this right is this thing going on in florida as well they do uh, they drop um, artificial reefs all the time? Sometimes you'll see like a decommissioned ship uh, sunk, you know, to uh, so the vegetation can grow and it becomes a habitat for the fish. Um, I think they do things now that they did not used to do before because uh, of environmental concerns, like tires and things like that. They don't put down there because they're rubber, you know, and they don't decompose or anything. The oil rig, some of them dry up, so they do move from oil rig to oil rig. Um, here in Florida, they've been trying to lobby to have oil rigs uh, for a while. They, it has never succeeded. Um, some people don't want to have them within sight of the beaches because of the tourism. Um, and that and they feel like the oil rigs in, like in the Western Gulf or around Louisiana and Texas, uh, they feel like they dirty the water. They, the water becomes more murky, and uh, they want to keep the water clear here in our area. So. They're not allowing any oil rigs in, but they do. Uh, they sink ships every once in a while in cages and things like that. And it usually works out better for the fish because in about a year or two after you sink one of these things, it's loaded with fish. And like, is there much commercial fishing pressure on those fish? Or is it the only recreational? Yeah, I mean, they're regulated too, though. The commercial fish are very regulated. Uh, we do have them. They go out for sometimes a week at a two at a time and they have... Uh, they have nets and they catch snappers and, and groupers and that sort of thing in our area. There are shrimp boats all over the place too. I'm asking because when you said about the the um, artificial reefs there were uh, off the coast of Cork here in Ireland, there are some wrecks and we, you know, it's like a long steam to get to those wrecks. And on a few occasions we would get to wrecks and it turns out that the wreck is just wrapped with the, with the net. And it was like, okay, so I guess no fishing here. So they were completely, you know, like either wiped or just basically wrapped with the net. So that that was that was that was a bummer. But I guess again, you folks in the US, and this is like a reoccurring theme, you you so much better regulated in, in terms of, you know. Look, um, like I said, uh, and and I said it many times that, you know, the book might look it like a um, you know, modest at first go, but that man, it's 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 really good, and and I appreciate you sending me the autographed copy. So it's so it's nice. <laughs> yeah, sure, Tommy. Uh, <laughs> I appreciate. it. I'm glad you liked it. Yeah, but it, and also, it? 
to your listeners, uh, go to the website, flickerinthewater.com, where there's a lot of stuff on there that's not in the book that you like too. Yeah. Very interesting. Yes, yes. And we, as always, we're going to put the link in the, in the show notes um to the to the to your website and we're gonna and i'm gonna send that uh information the newsletter as well so folks can click oh and, great and, and yeah cool bob listen is there anything uh that we didn't cover yet something that you would you know think it's worth talking about and i never never asked you about it i want to say um also uh tommy for anyone who's ever read the old man in the sea by ernest hemingway i mean it's the his granddaughter mariel I should see that there, Mariel Hemingway. She wrote the forward for my book. Yeah, yeah. I, I, no, I, no, I noticed that. It, it, it was great. How did you, how did you locate her and, and, and get her to Mariel to um, works with my publisher, Mindster Media. They give her a script, and if she likes a script, uh, she'll write the forward for it. And uh, thankfully, she liked mine, and that uh, she made it a member of her book club. Oh, so, uh, excellent. Yeah. She said the book uh, spoke to her with a deep sense of appreciation, which, you know, it really meant a lot to me. Yeah. You know, anybody who's ever fished knows about the old man in the sea. So Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. It's a classic. Bob, thank you for that. I really appreciate it. Um, once again, congratulations on the book. The website is Flicker on the Water. Uh, link in the description of the show. Uh, so folks, uh, go in there, uh, read the website and get the book. You won't regret it. Bob, thank you so much. Thank you, Tommy. It was great. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave me five-star rating on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. This is great help for me and for the podcast. And while you're already there, don't forget to subscribe to my newsletter. The link is in the description of the show.